Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. So, Marty, I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature. Yes. And I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart? Well, I had this question, even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like, I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing. And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, heal, help others heal and heal the world, mm. that this this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture. And yeah. people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches. People take the training because it's like getting life coaching yeah you know and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature yeah it was originally just a access your own true nature course Mm -hmm. but when you've mastered that you really want to share it with other people and people want to be shared with and they will pay you money so if that's the way you want to go that's why it ended up being life coach training but it's actually wayfinder which is different. It's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and and steering your own course. So if people are interested, you can Google Wayfinder Life Coach Training or go to marthabeck.com and you will find your way. Yes, you will. Hi, I'm Martha Beck. And I'm Rowan Mangan. This is Bewildered, the podcast for people trying to figure it out. I myself have been trying to figure it out using long division this week, which I never learned to do. So Mm -hmm. it was tricky. Anyway, Marty realized she had a calculator in her phone and figured it out in just a few seconds. Uh, Yeah, actually, just between you and me, I figured out that if you poke at a calculator a few times and then proclaim something in a very confident voice, people like Ro will believe you have figured it out. I don't have a clue what she was going on about. This actually is how I make my living. (laughs) (laughs) I looked it up and I, this is what I got. I figured it out. Proclaim things confidently. Absolutely. (laughs) What are you actually trying to figure out, Marty Moo? Oh, heavens. Oh, it's been a hard chapter in my life. Oh, yes. Because I have been on a book tour. A a book book tour? A book tour. And a book tour these days means a lot of Zoom things you know, interviews. Mm -hmm. And and people who used to do radio, they still want to see your face. They want to see your face. I just, I don't want them to see my face. That's why I became a writer, not a facer. (laughs) So I remembered that when I used to go out and about doing book tour things Mm. for reels, like in, like I was on the Oprah show and stuff, they always put you in hair and makeup. 
Mm. So you come out looking ridiculous, but you're confident because they have proclaimed in a confident <laughs> voice that you now look exactly like the makeup artist. You will walk out looking exactly <laughs> like the makeup artist. Anyway, one thing they do is they put on you the false eyelashes. The false eyelashes? The eyelashes of falseness. Do they affix to your eyes? Well, your eyelids. That would be awkward. <laughs> and then every time you look sideways, you go, ah! Because it's like there's a spider on your face. Oh. Yeah. But anyway, it makes you look much better on camera. So I was ready to do my first Zoomy things. And again, because um, I'm a very, very lucky woman, Oprah invited me to do a thing with her. Well, the false eyelashes on Oprah are world class. Like I could not countenance going on an Oprah production without false eyelashes. It's very strange just from where I sit to have to be preparing for an interview with Oprah in your house, like in your own one's own bathroom. It was very weird. Very weird. Yeah. So it's anyway, still your house, right? But I, how do you make it Oprah enough? For I Oprah? know. There's no way. Well, there was one way. We tried. So I thought, okay, I remember the way the makeup artists used to like spackle me <laughs> and the way, the way they affixed the eyelashes of falseness to my lids. So I thought, I can do this. I can do this. And actually, Ro went out and bought me all manner of false eyelashes. <laughs> Drove out into the day thinking, we've got to Oprahfy this right. woman. So she came back with all kinds of cosmetics, including false eyelashes and glue to put it on. And I was at home watching tutorials about how to do it. Folks, it's so simple. I mean, just watch the tutorials. Put a little glue on the thing. Make sure you put your mascara on first because it sticks to the falsies. Then you just lay them along the lash line. Tap, tap, tap. You're done. No problem. So I gave myself two hours to do it. Ridiculous amount of time. <laughs> yeah. So it's like everything's ready. We create a fake TV studio in our spider-filled basement where Dracula is like right behind the sliding door. But it looks really good on the camera, right? Yeah, it looked great. It looked great. They thought we were in some sort of spacious thing. And um, we were not. Two hours before it all goes down, I begin putting on the false lashes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the bitter laugh of experience. Uh, like an, about 90 minutes in, Ro texted me <laughs> to say, how are you doing? And I got this text back with no punctuation that simply said, I am in hell. <laughs> from, her, from her bathroom, she was texting me, I am in hell. And I come in and there's just, there's just eyelashes hurled on every surface <laughs> furiously. Like you could feel how furiously they've been hurled. And the glue everywhere. And was, Marty was in a state. It was a nightmare. And my I had one mainly glued to my eye and, I, and because I hadn't glued it exactly anywhere near the eyelashes I tried to fill in the space between my fake eyelashes and my real ones by poking eyeliner in through the false so I had like half an inch of eyeliner with eyelashes sitting on the top of them and the other one simply would not stick because I have a watery eye because of allergies and every time I got it halfway there it would sprawling out because the tears would dissolve the glue so I was losing my crap I could not go on Oprah without false eyelashes the one eye looked fantastic a little startling, but okay. <laughs> and so Rose it did like, blink. It did blink a millisecond after you did. <laughs> <laughs> Had like this lag effect. So Rose says, "We can do this. We can do this." 
So we get the girl. <laughs> just, just, just lie down flat. So I lie down flat on the bed so my tears will fall backwards instead of out and down my cheeks, which they were doing for reasons of allergies and grief at this point because I was so full of shame and horror. So she said, shut your eye. So we painted it with as much eyeliner as the other one. And then Ro got a pair of tweezers. Well, first I got the glue, the yeah. eyeliner, then glue, put the glue on and <laughs> got a pair of tweezers because I was trying to find something that I could use to hold it down to while, the glue lid while the glue dried. Tweezers are sharp. <laughs> But so I didn't sorry. want, and, and she had to put some pressure on because then otherwise we wouldn't have falsies for Oprah. But the, the whole time I'm thinking I could lose my eye right now. <laughs> if she leaned in just a bit more. I was like, it's okay. It's okay. So we went. And then eventually somehow we got both eyes with sufficient eyelash. Reasonably like- the same. And I tried to like mop up all the glue and eyeliner off the rest of my face with Q-tips. And, and then cover it with cover stick and whatnot. So then we went down. And down I was to the basement like of Oprah. Into the basement with Dracula and the spiders. And we turned on a million lights and uh, got me on camera. And we had, and Oprah is so gracious and kind and wonderful. And probably not putting on her own false eyelashes, let's be it honest. It must be said. So, I mean, I'm sure she did it back in the day, but that was a while ago. But um, anyway. She looked fabulous, oh my as God, did you. She looked amazing. Anyway. Like halfway through, unbeknownst to me, they started I start getting texts <laughs> from the producers. And what they were actually asking me to do was, you know, to intervene and fix a smudge that they thought they could see near Martha's eye. And <laughs> but but it you have to wound. understand Oprah was talking in my house. She wasn't there, but she was talking there and she was talking to Marty and it was a lot of pressure for me to sit there in the dark and and let it take place. Then they start telling me, just interrupt Oprah. I'm like, oh, right. I'm not interrupting Oprah no. for nothing. And they're like, no, Martha has a smudge on her face. It's a wound, people. It's a wound. And I just, I was like, look, I can try, but. She's going to have to give me a very long pause before I'm going to interrupt Oprah for a smudge. Like the smudge in the scheme of things in how badly oh this could gosh. have gone. It's nothing. It was nothing. It was truly. If they had no. If they had any idea. And now it's Oprah would have just kicked you if the she fly. knew how bad <laughs> you just... almost did. We don't. No, we want no one to read your book. You have a <laughs> wounded eye. So anyway, that's I'm, I've been doing more interviews, and every now and then I try to put on the falsies, and I'm getting somewhat better at it. Like it's it's a little bit less uh, like I'm wrestling a crocodile in there um, when I'm putting on the falsies. But uh, one evening she was due to interview be interviewed by someone she's very excited about, oh and it, we we determined that this was a false eyelash worthy interview. Yes, it was this amazing. He was the main. Um, hostage negotiator for the FBI. And he was interested in my book. Like I write self-help and like chick lit and stuff. And he's like this very fancy FBI agent. So I read his book, which is amazing. She read it like three times, started trying. How to interrogate hostages. I'm like, this is mentally wonderful. (laughs) Mentally wonderful. (laughs) 
And then she started trying to use the techniques on us in the house. <laughs> she was like negotiating this. It was true. We'd be like, oh, wait, do we have any bagels? And I'd say, how can I give you a bagel until I know what you're going to do with it? What? Define bagel. Yeah, these are the techniques. Anyway, I get my false eyelashes on and it only took like an hour. And down she goes. It was it was we had family things happening, so I couldn't go down and lurk in the darkness with her for this one. So we, I heard no more. She descended for an hour and then she walked back up the stairs, eyelashes first, coming around the corner. <laughs> eyelashes Waving, flapping in the wind. eyelashes <laughs> that enter the room half a second before I do. That's right. It was amazing. Damn, you looked good that Thank night, Marty. You. Anything for the FBI. <laughs> well, I know. And so I said, how did it go? How did it go? And uh, <laughs> Marty goes, it went well. <laughs> <laughs> With that tone of voice. It went well. <laughs> Considering that it was a man in his mother's garage in a small town in the country somewhere. <laughs> uh, it was a per- different person of the same name. Yeah, it was not It was not a hostage guy. It was a guy who, in his bio, it turned out, which we hadn't closely examined, said that he likes to review restaurants <laughs> from his small town and rant about traffic. <laughs> rant about traffic. <laughs> and he, got, he managed to land Martha Beck. <laughs> <laughs> we ranted about traffic till the cows came home. It was oh how we laughed. It would have been ironic if you ended up having to use FBI guys techniques Techniques. against or with the other dude with the same name who yeah. ended up being your interviewer. Oh, and we still haven't heard from FBI hostage negotiator. FBI guy. I kept checking to make sure it wasn't really he. My FBI hero. Okay, so Ro. Yes. What are you actually trying to figure out besides how to interrupt Oprah and remove the wound from my face? I don't think I'll ever get over that feeling of being told to interrupt Oprah. I'm like, you interrupt Oprah. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) You're right there with her and they're like, that's why we can't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I never interrupted her. I didn't need to. It was okay. It was fine. What am I trying to figure out? I <laughs> One of the things that I have really in all seriousness been trying to figure out lately. Well, let me backtrack. When you're a foreign person in a foreign land, mm. one of the things that occasionally happens from mm. time to time, especially when you need to communicate with people on the telephone, is that you get on the phone with the DMV or whatever they can't understand a dang word you say. What? Sorry, say that again. <laughs> and it's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. And so I thought I don't want to talk American if I can get away with not, but I'd like to have a decent, you know, comprehensible <laughs> accent in my back pocket for those moments. Ordering takeout, that's another one. Yeah. I mean, God help me if I even used my own language and called it takeaway. Like, it's really called. What? I, you've lost me. I know. Go back. And so I, <laughs> I have been trying to figure out how to do an American accent. And for anyone out there who's not American and has ever tried this, one of the North American, I should say, because I think the Canadians do similar, one of the most difficult sounds to make if you come from my part of the world is the American R sound well done thank you because for us i mean i will i will acknowledge that in my own accent now that i've 
like looked deeply into it. We don't really say R as R. We say it as ah. Yeah. When I meet <laughs> people, who, when Ro has introduced me, oh god, yeah, they say so. It's nice to meet you. Maddie? <laughs> and we have a dog named Bilbo, Rose Dog Bilbo. <laughs> we might have we talked about this before. We took him to the store oh. and, and she, the, the, the checker said, what's his name? And Rose said, Bilbo. I and did it. I said Bilbo like a normal human being. And she said, hello, Bilbo. <laughs> <laughs> no, Bilbo. So then I tried to learn how to say Bilbo. But that's not even it. I don't know. No, so the thing good. is, that's really good. That's much really? better than you used to. Do it. One of the things that you don't realize is that you've never. Wait, all right, I'll own it. One of the things I realize is that I've never heard a proper American accent spoken in my voice. So I don't know how much my voice will change when I'm doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really weird thing to admit. But anyway, so I started watching YouTube <laughs> videos about how to do an American accent to the hilarity of Marty and Karen who were hanging out there. We're part of the dominant culture and then feel absolutely free to <laughs> mock and ridicule. Yeah, it's like bear baiting. <laughs> I actually did have to tell you quite forcefully to shut the you know what up, didn't I? Know, I? I cried my false eyelashes. <laughs> terrible <laughs> <laughs> you weren't actually saying anything it's just that your eyelashes were flapping noisily <laughs> so what, just tell them about the spoon the <clears throat> tiny okay. spoon so this is if you want to make an american r sound what you need to do is make your little tongue the shape in your mouth of like a little teaspoon <laughs> I hope there is not one person listening to this right now who's not trying to make a spoon shape out of their tongue. Well, and then I can say Marty. Marty. Yeah. Marty. Well, and there was the, the YouTube person who had you say rough, rough <laughs> to get yes. it going. It's funny the things they can make you do. So then she, then she can say rough, but she can't say my name without going marufty. Mar- marufty. <laughs> I've been practicing and practicing, which usually sounds like this around our house. Marty. Yes. Marty. Yes. Marty. Yes. <laughs> no, no. Marty. Marty. <laughs> That's just Bilbo joining in. I hope you never figure that out, Roy, because I love having uh, an Aussie around and I love Australian accents. So Thank you. Well, yeah. maybe there's a happy medium. Somewhere there's a happy medium, which kind of brings us to our topic of what we really want to talk about today. Extraordinarily, because it's quite a big leap to get there from the where we've been. The happy medium. Change, eh? Mm, it sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh, by coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right. You can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. So we'd been talking recently, Marty, about the process of coming back out into the world after a year and some nearly a year and a half for some of us with 
you know, lockdowns and and um, quarantine and all the sort of stuff that's happened yeah. in the last stuff. Hmm? Pandemic, pandemic stuff. stuff, you could say, come under that umbrella. And the way that, you know, we that it is a coming out in the other sense as well for many of us who have, you know, had a, a year outside of society. And we talked about this in our last episode, actually, about mm-hmm. just be your weirdnesses can start to poke through <laughs> a bit more. And uh, I was thinking about it as as coming out because I was listening to this really great um, non-binary person on Instagram called Jeffrey Marsh who was talking about the ways that the pandemic year affect have affected people's gender and their attitude towards the gender binary. And what they were saying was that the use of they, them pronouns is actually like really, really, really increasing as people get to spend this time at home and they're not having to go outside the house and perform their gender in society day after day and kind of it doesn't get reinforced in that way, the role. And I thought that was really interesting. So there's, you know, coming out as COVID ends can mean coming out of your house and it can mean like introducing yourself with the identity that you've been able to access. Yeah, because there's so many things we perform culturally. Right. Gender being a very, very intense and ubiquitous one. But Mm -hmm. think of all the things we didn't have to perform as much. And that, you know, in this breakdown that we do between culture and nature, with less culture, it allowed people's natures to rise up more. And we're less performative about everything. And then when you think about going back out into the world, the the idea of having to perform again mm. can loom up. And if you don't, if you decide you're not going to go out and perform whatever aspect of your culture you're going to confront, if you're not going to perform, you're going to have to come out as who you really are. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people confronting that decision right now and uh, lots of different ways that people are coming out and not just people i mean as we record this marty there's another kind of coming out that's true that's true after 17 long years the cicadas of the northeastern american continent are they have been chewing tree roots for 17 years as little nymphs when i read the word nymph in greek mythology i didn't think of it as a disgusting little larva but (laughs) They've been nymphing away for 17 years. And then once every 17 years, they come out, they shed their carapaces, they come out as as cicadas. Cicadas, yes, full-fledged with red eyes. And um, I was afraid they were going to eat everything because we read that there would be hundreds of billions coming out of the ground right about now. And there are in places. Like I can see them. I can see them on my screens, my devices. I see those cicadas, but I don't see them out the window. We haven't had them per se, right no. right in our exact location. They could still come. Anyway, I was afraid they would eat everything, all the leaves and plants and whatnot. But no, they don't eat after they come out. After their 17 years of maturation, they come out, they blossom into sexual maturity, and they don't even eat. What they do is they climb to the tops of trees, and they scream, mm-hmm. and then they have sex and die. So and basically just like all the rest of us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's very precarious for me now out on the ends of the limbs. Um, <laughs> but Especially with those eyelashes. Right? The wind They can unbalance you. But I could maybe fly. I have cicada wings on my eyes. Um, but I was thinking, because you're, they're not sexual until they 
they end the nymph stage and they leave their carapace behind and then they're I'll say creatures. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. And they I guess they're screaming with sexual desire or something because people say that in areas where they're really common, the noise is so deafening you have to wear earplugs, people go deaf almost listening to them. Anyway, I was thinking, what if you were a gay cicada and you didn't know like you would be chomping away, Mm -hmm. no sexual organs, no sexual maturity, potential you know assume one is to assume no sexual inclinations per se again Mm, mm. and then you come out you shed your carapace you climb to the top of a tree and you you realize you want to scream to you know female to female male to male and you would have to come out after coming out and if you only had screaming as your method of delivery of your coming out (laughs) maybe they would mom maybe <laughs> I'm dying. Maybe we should do that, or just climb up to the top of a tree. I think it's a bit late. I think people have got our number on and that score. Sway in the wind, screaming, I'm dying. <laughs> that would be one way to reconcile the issue once and for all. Quite right. And so we've still not got to the, what this podcast is about, although, like, you must have all kinds of brilliant ideas from where we have traveled. But. Um, <laughs> You know, it's funny because what we want to talk about is actually in some ways more taboo in Mm. parts of our society than coming out as gay or even trans would be. Yeah, You could call it coming out as a mystic. A mystic, right. And and what we're sort of talking about, what even now we're dancing around, which just shows that there is that we're so aware of this taboo. We're talking about magic. Let's just say it. Yeah. Magic. Um. An experience of the world that includes the miraculous, the magical, the uh, the 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 inexplicable by rational means sort of um, the mystery. Yeah, we're talking mystery. about the mystery and like in the mystery, a kind of worldview that can accommodate mysteries. And also, you know, if you look it up in the dictionary, um, it's about somebody who really wants to sort of turn inward or toward the mystery in whatever way that is, and is seeking to commune with it, unite with it, understand it. And it's, you know, there there are all these weird religious overtones in our culture, and then there's sort of the materialist, we don't believe any of that. And so it's a really difficult, marshy topic if you want to be a mystic in the modern world. And it occurs to me that Jeffrey Marsh's uh, description of how people come to want to use they, them pronouns is, it, it really works as an analogy because what they, Jeffrey, was saying was that it's not gender that you come to have a problematic relationship with. It's the gender binary that can become complicated for people. And it's the binary of the this or. And that's, I I mean, for me, that that rings really true when it comes to the mystic kind of word or, or at least how we're defining it today is that our culture, again, segments of our culture, can class a belief in science as one option, as one paradigm, and a belief in what, you know, we're kind of with a bit of discomfort calling magic as another, and it's either or, it's a binary. So you can't hold both at the same time. Do you think that's fair, Martha Beck? Yeah, Wait, 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 sorry, just stop for one second. Martha Beck. 
Your tongue is so spoon-shaped right now. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> no, it, it's really true because you kind of get lumped into, I'll be, you'll believe everything, you know, like a child versus you believe nothing, like, a, you know, a hardcore materialist. Um, and there's something else going on there. That's why they call it the mystery. I want to tell a story. Can I tell a quick story? Is it a coming out as a mystic? Kind Story. of, because I did this in my last book, and my whenever I write about magic or miracles in my books, New York editors get a little queasy, right? <laughs> so I wrote Hi. a whole section, Hi Guys, um, that was really about magic and miracles and strangeness, and they were like, you know, tap the brakes. <laughs> so I pulled it back, but I still told this story. I have a weird relationship with wild animals, and... Um, Sometimes I want to see them and I can feel myself calling them and I can feel them reacting. And it's like a piece of my own body. It's like feeling something with my hand or my foot, but a long way away. So one of the stories I told was I went to Sedona to do an interview um, when I was living in California. And I wanted, we're, I'm driving into Sedona late at night and I'm leaving, I'm interviewing someone and leaving first thing the next morning. But as we drove in the dark through Sedona, I thought, I have seen the tracks here of a javelina. Javelinas are little wild pig-like animals that exist in the Arizona deserts. And I love them. And I thought, I really want to see one. But it was dark night, and I was going to be out of there first thing in the morning. So I thought, well, that's not going to happen. But I felt them. And then you were there. Damn straight I was. So we're, we go into this hotel suite the next day. It's on the ground floor. The whole, it's a vast, like, place. There are a lot of hotel rooms in this sort yeah, of it's spa. Like a it's like a resort with little little self-contained house-type yeah. structures. <laughs> and we're, we're getting all set for our interviews, and we're getting our microphones on, and there's a knock at the door. Do I lie? You don't. No, I was there. I do not lie. There was a knock, and a camera assistant went to get the door, and she said... It's a pig, <laughs> which is not what you hear every single time you go to do a televised interview. <laughs> so we rushed over thinking it would be a farm pig, but it was not. Or maybe a like drawing of a pig. <laughs> or, or <laughs> I didn't have my sight set very. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Sorry for that, that slur against. Um, um, so we op- so this peccary, this they're they're of the peccary. <laughs> sorry, it's a javelina. They're also called peccaries. That's the species genus, whatever. Anyway, it's standing there. Such a square. It knocked upon the door, and there it was. And I thought we, it would run off into the brush because I've seen them, but always running into the brush. You see them behind with their little curly tails going boing, 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 like a false eyelash (laughs) of the the behind. When you stop at the eyelashes, you mock my shame. Anyway, it just stayed there. So after a while, someone cautiously opened the door and it it didn't leave. And it kind of walked over. We were close enough to like, if I jumped, I could have grabbed it, right? (laughs) I love that that's how you're measuring the distance. (laughs) It's Don't a very think I huge. wasn't thinking about I it. I know you were. That's why it's so cute. But the hotel assistant was standing there going, they're very aggressive. They're very aggressive. And this thing is like, hello. And then out of the, the desert came more freaking javelinas than I have ever seen even pictures of. It there, was a whole country's worth it of was, javelinas. The technical word is it was a sounder. It was a sounder. You are such a square. Of peccaries. Yes, I've been known to be square. And 
but do I lie? There were females nursing their little piglets. They were pig- oh my god, they so were cute. really cute. There were several different males that were like sub It was like a, a large. It was like a Mormon family reunion and how many like thousands. Well. You know, ish. Um, <laughs> but dozens of javelinas. And they just munched and ate and nursed their babies. And then they politely turned. And we had to go to do the interview. This is not the only experience that I've had with wild animals that is this strange. And there were a lot of rooms on that property. And I even went and asked. And, ha- okay, so that's, let's not forget, <laughs> the pig knocked on the door like let's not just rush past that part of it yes how does a pig knock on a door i only i heard about a pig named russell who he belonged to this my just has the that this is such a lie it's just like a pig named russell i don't believe <laughs> oh, a true. word of it my veterinarian told me about him and she said pigs are so smart that if she punished <laughs> your him, own veterinarian she would punish him <laughs> By making him go to time out in his bedroom. Russell had his own room. Oh, boy. She was a veterinarian. Okay. Was this a dream? No. No. I said in Australian. <laughs> um, but Russell, when he was pu- punished for something he felt was unjust, he would go into his room, turn around, shut, slam the door shut with his, la- his uh, back trotter. <laughs> And then he would open it with his snout and then he'd slam it again with his back trotter and he would slam the door like a hundred times out of rage. I knew this was a lie when you started and <laughs> nothing not. that you've told me has convinced me I swear me to God, my veterinarian... T- now, she may have been lying, <laughs> but she seemed like an honest woman. What? What is it? What is it from the line where it says, is that true? It's true that I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... If that's not, I mean, stuff like this happens to me. Wild animals come to places where I are and I, where I are, (laughs) and I lose all sense of grammar. (laughs) No, I mean, and it happens over and over and over. And once you could have a very, you know, improbable experience, but to have it over and over, there's something going on. Yeah, I mean, and here's the thing is I think that while there's this, um, reluctance and resistance to acknowledge this. One of the things that that you've told me that during this book tour has come up again and again is that there someone will come on the line from some very reputable media, whatever place, a place of media. <laughs> place of um, media. You know where they they go. Those media <laughs> <Earth's> types. Media. <laughs> Off in the desert. <laughs> um, and. You'll be talking to someone who's very, very rationalist materialist. Yes. Like it's it's right science or nothing. Yeah. And then you'll say something about something magic because you will, because you're a mystic. Because I come out. She, I you come out coming again. Coming out as a again. mystic. Yeah. And yet you live, never leave the house. <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> <interesting>. <laughs> But when I do, I climb a tree and scream and have sex and die. <laughs> <laughs> it it's part of the problem, s- honestly. <laughs> Seventeen years. Um, so yeah, it's the intellectual ones. It's the NPR folk, you know, mm. who, who are like, now uh, you say in your book that you had uh, certain experiences that might be considered paranormal, <laughs> and uh, and they always say it with a kind of disdain, so that they will not be mocked by the culture. Right. They they get to be safe, but boy, they want to hear it. And they just keep bringing it up and bringing mm. it up and bringing it up. And they say, so do you believe that? And I, I have a line that I say. Yes. Is, I don't believe it, but I don't not believe it. 
And that's the whole binary, right? Right. Like you either believe it or you don't. Well, only if you're being really dogmatic about something. Because you don't have to reject the science or reject the um, magic. You have to reject the idea that those things are mutually exclusive. It's it's the binary nature of it that isn't true. So it's not believe or don't believe. It's neither. It's so interesting having um, my obsession with Asian philosophy because what you're doing is you're trading magic belief mind, science belief mind, with open mind, which is not binary. Yeah. You can't have your side of open and my side of open. If you're open, you're open, right? So um, I do believe that that is one way to take your own mind if you've been having mystical experiences. But we're talking about how you deal with the cultural pressure um, to be a certain way when your nature may want to go another way and where culture makes you come to consensus so that you agree with everyone and your nature wants you to come to your senses. And the title of this, or at least one we batted around, is Why Just Five Senses? Yeah. I think, you know, and it's interesting because this is one of these areas where because um, we talk about the culture or this culture or that culture, and, and it can be we can be talking about really different ones in this yeah. in this sense because you might belong to the kind of culture where it's all um, atheistic, materialistic, rational. You know, rational. That's the only thing. Or you could be in um, a religious culture where it, it sounds like it's the same tone of voice of absolutely this, but it's talking about walking on water. One thing that was so interesting to me growing up Mormon is, you know, they tell you, you can have personal revelations and everything. And then I read a book by a Mormon woman who had a near-death experience. And um, she wrote this book that became a bestseller. So she'd had, she was Mormon. And the Mormon church um, denounced her. And I was like, wait, but you guys believe in... Much weirder shit than that. Yeah, much weirder shit than that. And they were like, only if it's our shit, right? <laughs> that so, is actually the perfect kind of way of, of summing up the kind of nonsense that anyone who's a fundamentalist about anything, yeah. you know, will believe is it's like, it's our shit. It's, right. It's complete nonsense. It's our nonsense. <laughs> because it belongs, sorry, I'm going to get wonky here, in the part of the brain that makes absolute decisions based on self versus other and then attacks. Oh, say so, more about that. Yeah, it's uh, Jonathan Haidt, a fantastic social psychologist, calls this the righteous mind. Mm-hmm. There's a part of the brain that is ancient and animal and not rational at all. And it, it, it bases a sense of safety on being around people who are just like you. So when it sees other, it always others mm. a group that isn't like you or a person that isn't like you. And then it attack, 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 attacks. So the Mormons can say, yes, every righteous man will have his own planet and infinite women with which to people that planet. And you're like, okay, I'm three. What do I know? And then <laughs> this woman has an, a near-death experience and they're like, you didn't have that. That's nonsense. That's just too weird. That's just too weird for us to even think about. So... um yeah, there's this othering, attacking thing that happens that has no basis in rationality. But we have a very, the sort of educated core of our culture took a position against mystical religions because they were tired of being pushed around by people's religious dogma. And they said, look, if you can't measure it, it's not real, period. And then they started othering. Yeah, yeah it's the same part of the brain and the same exactly. tone of voice. It's yeah. not open mind at yeah, all. Yeah. It's very rigid, very dogmatic and equally unprovable, I might add. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? The way that that we seem to want to draw a little circle around our little patch and say only this and nothing else yep. shall ever, you know, make an incursion into my beliefs. And right there, learning ends because right. you're at, you're at consensus. There's no more need to consult your senses. And actual science says, look at what's happening to you. Yeah, but but the scientific cultural mainstream says. Don't look at what's happening to you. Look at what we know is possible. And it's only these things. Yeah. It reminds me of this episode of The West Wing, <laughs> as so many things do. If it's not Annie DeFranco lyrics, it's The West Wing. And uh, which I was telling you about recently. Um, it was an episode that was trying to grapple with the whole post 9-11 fundamentalism is what it was about. Um, not just Islamic fundamentalism, but also, you know, equivalents from different cultures and it at the end of the episode, someone says, you know, it's sort of set up as a play to these these high school students. And um, someone says to them, if you want to really piss these people off, meaning all the fundamentalists, you know, if you really want to get them where they live, keep accepting more than one idea. Hmm. And I, I just love that. And that's sort of what we're talking about is just like where we're closed, let us open. What's the worst that can happen? Right. Well, and no, but that's the worst taking that can it off. happen is you can get hammered by the culture. I really think, and um, when I was at Harvard, Drink. it was very, very apparent to me. Oh, that- sorry, Martha. It's it's Ma- Martha. It's pronounced Harvard. Oh, <laughs> Harvard. Harvard. Hammond. Okay, you just work away over there in Oz at pronouncing Martha. 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 Okay. So I, I actually decided that um, the culture of the mainstream educational elite represses mysticism the way people in Freud's culture repressed sexuality. It's a real thing that happens to you, but you're not supposed to admit that it's happening to you. And because of that, you can get all messed up around it. Mm. And for example, um, I had a class in Shakespeare. and Shakespeare. 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 So we studied all the plays and we studied the four great tragedies, which are very, very dark and nihilistic in some ways. And then with great embarrassment, the professor introduced Shakespeare's romances, which he wrote after the four great tragedies, which end with total devastation, right? But in the, in the romances, he, Shakespeare appears to have had a shift of some kind because he starts writing about similar situations, but with the addition of forgiveness, magic, um, love as a paradigm that takes us into magic. Mm. And he gets quite mystical. And I remember the sh- my Shakespeare professor telling us that the only reason he did that was that he was clearly going into dementia because the four <laughs> great tragedies describe the world as it is, horrible and, you know, short, brutish, nasty, brutish. and short. And the romances are just playing crazy. <laughs> and I was like, dementia? He was, what, 52 when he died? I don't think so. But I think Shakespeare had a mystical, if you read those last plays, it really matches the view of the world that I developed as I became obsessed with the mystery and with contemplating the aspects of the mystery that have come into my life. And the more you do that, the more you have those experiences, I believe. So the, like the Tempest or whatever was Shakespeare coming out 
Yeah. As a mystic. Oh, yeah. And we are such stuff as dreams are made of. There's not, you know, he had, I think he had an awakening experience. So I, part of mysticism to me is not just magic and miracles, but that which in Asia is known as enlightenment or awakening, which is actually just a shift into a world where there's no sense of self and there's no sense of control. It, they can study this in the brain now. What happens when those two areas of the brain go silent is an explosion of feeling un- unity with everything, feeling connected, feeling that you are not identified only with your body, feelings of bliss, joy, um, intense desire to serve. I mean, it's all good stuff. I think it happened to Shakespeare. I think it happened to a lot of people. I just don't think people like to, and so at Harvard, they're saying, yeah, it only happens to people in dementia. And I'm like, you're in dementia. (laughs) (laughs) Got a D. No, I didn't. Of course he didn't. I lied and got a good grade. You know, it's so funny, Marty, because, you know, we've been talking about how this topic is sort of taboo. And, you know, I identify very much with, I guess, the segments of the culture that are more materialist and rationalist and, you know, this is how it is. And I notice that I'm getting quite embarrassed, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm getting awkward. Because it's be- time for you to tell a story about being a mystic. Hey? Right. Yeah. It's like it's a coming out. So I wanted to tell a story about something that happened to me when I was 18 and then happened to me when I was about 23. So I, um, I had a my grandparents, my paternal grandparents lived in Canada and my dad was brought up there. And uh, I got very close with my grandmother in my final year of school and we were corresponding a lot and I had planned to go and stay with her for the bulk of my, like take a, a gap, year gap year and go stay with her after I finished high school. And so I was finishing high school and there was like a sort of graduation ceremony at my school at the end of classes and that night I had a really 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 intense dream and the dream was that I was sitting on the end of a little jetty with my dangling my legs in the water and a seal swam up and sort of took my ankle in its mouth and tugged really gently and so I I jumped down into the water and I was swimming around under the water with this seal and I knew for sure that the seal was my grandmother and it was the most beautiful dream like probably that I've ever had I still can remember it so vividly like there were like rays of sunlight coming down through the water it was so beautiful and so loving and just the kindness in this seal. <laughs> You've never seen a kinder seal, Marty. I mean, it was, was... it a seal of approval? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, she went there. Uh, and so anyway, I woke up in the morning and my dad came over and told me that my grandmother had died in the night. And that in itself felt like a really incredible magic story. Like I felt, you know, I had to rethink... My whole plan, like it was just terrible timing, but I'd had this beautiful dream and it, it really helped me a lot. Uh, one of the things that she had always said was that she wanted to have her ashes thrown from this place where she grew up on the on the west coast of Ireland. And there are these sort of bridges that have been built along the shoreline, the ocean 
shoreline. There are pebble beaches. And she always said the second bridge, that's where I want my ashes thrown. Now, when I was uh, in my early 20s, I went to that part of the world for the first time. And I didn't have her ashes, but um, they were in another. <laughs> our, our family's quite far flung. So ashes are in Canada. I'd come from Australia. We're in Ireland. Got it. And I went there with a friend and I wanted to spend a bit of time communing with my grandmother. And so it was a rainy day. My friend and I were walking along these bridges and I said to her, you know what, I'm just going to stay here at the second bridge for a little while. She went off for a walk and I stood there. Oh, chills. I looked out at the sea and out of the sea, like out of the ocean came the head of the seal. It wasn't very far away. I was quite close to the ocean. And that seal... I swear to God, Marty, just swam and dived and was just right there visible for probably, I don't know, half an hour that my friend was off walking. That's That one seal just stayed there and played and it was the absolute connection to my dream. Like there was just no doubt about it. Mm. And I just, I'm I 100% sure that I felt her. And she has still, you know, she's still a big part of yeah. my life and, you know, she's connected to our daughter and, you yeah. know, there's... So that's why there's a seal in the bathtub? That- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm afraid you have this so. beautiful, beautiful story and then I make a joke about it. I, so I got really excited when I thought there might be a seal in the bathtub. I'm sorry. Hmm. There was, you could look it up on YouTube, uh, a family in New Zealand who came in and a baby seal had come in from the beach, crossed a highway, gotten in through their dog door, and was lounging upon their sofa. Oh. They took it back to the ocean. They are kind of the dogs of the ocean, aren't they? They are. Seals are ye dogs of ye ocean. I think I've been a seal in at least one past life. How about you? I think I was a dog that swam with the seals. Oh, my God. Maybe we knew each other. Ruff, <laughs> <laughs> ruff. <laughs> okay, so... The point is, we've both had mystical experiences. Almost everyone I know has had some kind of mystical experience. Even just from like the level of those crazy coincidences, you know, yeah. all the way up. So to- and yet, the problem is there's another subculture that goes kind of too far the other direction. Yeah, that's right. So I have this thing, you know, I've written in, about it in memoirs and in, in nonfiction self-help where this happened, deal with it. But for me, it's about redefining reality as something much more, uh, much bigger than rational thinking believes it to be. I think to say that the human brain's rational capacity is the limit of intelligence in the universe is redunculous. Hmm. And for me, it's about seeking a deeper reality and experiencing this unexplainable, ineffable benevolence at the core of the universe and throwing the door open to more definitions of reality using more than five senses, right? Mm. So I talk about this in my book tour. And it's like, I've, I based my book around Dante's divine comedy. It's all this transcendence. And like, he, I think he was awakened and blah, blah, blah. Enlightenment as a brain state that can be proven by science itself. Well, measured, if not proven. So, oh. um, that measured is so good for science. Anyway, <laughs> then I go on lots of different podcasts. And the NPR people are like, I don't believe in magic. Tell me all the stories again. And, and then at the other end of the spectrum. Then I go on and, and this beautiful gentleman um, interviewed me. And we talked about all manner of things. And I told him that once I felt like I was being pulled out of a burning building by 
mysterious unseen forces, which is true. And I must have told him another time as well, because when he promoted his interview with me, <laughs> he had this, so he had like a little preview of his interview with Marty that he did a little, um, like little cover for on YouTube where he had, he'd taken a photo, like a little press kit photo that we had, and then given like a little speech bubble to say what Martha had said <laughs> and had written it out in this slide and it said, and I quote, angels saved my life twice. twice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, something about the twice. Angel saved my life twice. Little speech bubble. Martha Beck. Oh, Harvard. PhD Martha I, Beck. I'm out of the closet as a mystic, gay mystic, no less. And I cringe when people put me in that category because I don't think that's coming to our senses either. I think it's coming to a different kind of consensus. I, I mean, I remember reading in a very popular New Age book, which I shall not name, but it said, do not observe sick people or you will become sick. And it also said, you cannot catch a disease you don't think you can catch. And I was like, <laughs> and this was extremely popular, this book. And I was like, no! If you think it's the book you're thinking of, it is the book, it you're, is thinking the book of. you're thinking of. Actually, can I tell a story around that one too? Yeah. So it was The Secret by one of your countrymen, women, people. Rhonda. Rhonda. Rhonda Ben. Um, and I thought, everybody's reading this book. And I read it and it said, you do not, you cannot catch a disease you don't think you can catch. And I was like, hello. <laughs> you <laughs> you know. must have been thinking about some pretty obscure Back things in your the time. truck up. So I was, I was in a, and yet it annoyed me because at the same time there was a crossover with the way I experienced things. And I was so, like, I was really verklempt about this. And I got, I, I read it on a plane. I got off the plane and somebody calls me on my cell phone and I'm walking along and somebody calls and says, Martha, I just read the book, The Secret that everyone's talking about and you're in it. What? And I was like, no, I'm not. And they said, no, no, no. And I said, if, the, if you thought there's somebody who is me in that book? It's not me. They're like, no, no, no. She, they name you. So you you were reading the book on the plane. You got off the plane and someone called you about the, the book, book on the plane. that you'd been reading. Fifteen minutes later, someone calls me and says, you're in this book. Right. I had just read it. I said, I promise you, I'm not in this book. So then they start reading to me this passage about me. And I'm like, what is, where is this from? I Google it. There's another book called The Secret. What? That's written by a rabbi uh, and... <laughs> He does indeed refer to me. And so I, I literally stopped rolling my suitcase. I put it on the floor and I sat down and just held my head in my hands because it was such a weird coincidence that I'm reading The Secret, which says, when you think about things, they come toward you. <laughs> and then immediately, and I'm completely dismissing all of it. And then immediately someone calls me and says, you're in the book, The Secret, because they're reading another book called The Secret that they think is Rhonda Burns, The Secret. And I am, in fact, in it. And, you know, the other, the extra layer is you don't want, you really don't want to be associated no. with the kind of thinking. <laughs> Sorry for anyone who loves The Secret. Oh, we love not. it in a way too, but we... <laughs> Actually, I must plug my own book here because I found, I have found this, that yes, it does work the way they say it does in The Secret. If you, if you think of things deeply, they come to you on one condition. 
You have to be living in complete integrity, which means coming to your senses, looking at the way the world is working and making sure that it adds up according to the scientific method. Yes. So the math works, but also the soul, the body and the heart have come to the party and they're, they're all giving you a united sense of yes, this and I call it the sense of truth because we don't have access to any truth that isn't subjective. Everything's filtered through our perceptions, right? So nothing's objectively true. So when every aspect of our being, all our meaning-making systems says, yes, this is true, you can tell that you had a dream, you woke up, now you're awake. Because the meaning-making systems all say, this feels real, this feels true. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you get into total alignment with honesty about what's actually happening to you, then stuff that you think about happens even more frequently. I have to say it. It happens to me all the time. Anyway, so let's talk about coming to our senses. Wait, can I just ask you a question about that? Um, Bitch, where's my Ferrari? I cannot, in my integrity, allow you to drive my Ferrari. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been weird. (laughs) When I write and speak professionally, I have to tone it down, especially the part where I believe the universe loves us and is on our side. A few years ago, I decided to just show up online and say what I really think. This became The Gathering Pod, a series of discussions about how to thrive in a difficult world. So if you need hope, inspiration, or a chance to listen to someone much weirder than you could ever be, come join me on The Gathering Pod. All right, so so how do we come to our senses, however many we want to say that we have? Yeah. You yeah. know, I think there's at least nine or ten. You know, they think trees have about 15 senses that we know of. You're kidding. I'm not oh, kidding at wow, all. Oh, I love that. And that's scientific. See- that's not the whole, that's not the, wow, wow. Here's the secret. Trees have got 15 senses. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> 15 you figure it out oh that just reminded me because i just went into a russell brand mode that i wanted to talk about this just the the cultural shaming by the i know we're getting we're supposed to be moving on but i don't care i'm going back one of the ways out though this is one of the ways to come to your senses oh cool all right so uh russell brand um famed Ne'er do well, spiritual guru, sex addict. I don't know what he is. He's a funny British man. A phenomenon. That's what he is. A funny phenomenon. Um, he interviewed. I used to listen to his podcast fanatically, religiously, um, fundamentalistly. She believed it completely. I did. I believed every. It was word. her entire belief system. <laughs> it's actually not far off the truth. Um, he interviewed Richard Dawkins once of um, the God Delusion. Okay, fame. so Richard Dawkins, if you haven't run into him, is the meanest atheist ever to write a book. Like he, he doesn't just say there is no God. He, he basically climbs out of the pages, grabs you by the face, and says, "If you believe in a God, I will bite your freaking nose off, you moron!" Yeah. Okay. So go on. Yeah, that's that's little Dickie Dawkins. So <laughs> Russell Brand is interviewing him and uh, he says, you know, I just I can't help feeling that there is more. Like I know that you're saying this and, and Richard Dawkins is like, well, of course, that's just silly. And and Russell, I just never forget, there was just this, this lovely sort of pathos to him coming back to Dawkins and saying, oh, but come on, Richard, can't a feeling be as good as a thought? Come on, give us a cuddle. <laughs> in, 
<laughs> and I just, I don't know why, but like this part of, there is part of my personal um, paradigm of the world that says, why can't a feeling be as good as a it thought? Is. Like that's profound. It is. And, and the way he put it, uh, managed to get through sort of the, the barriers of the fundamentalist materialist by being so funny that he's immune to shaming. Right. Because that's that shaming is the great tool of the culture, right? And it will shame the crap out of you if you say that you uh, feeling is as good as a thought. But everyone feels that way, except maybe Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Imagine so, you went to Richard Dawkins and you were like, hey, Richard Dawkins, angels saved my I life love. twice. twice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, he would, he would actually, spontaneously combust, I think. I actually, so, okay, there's one. Uh, humor. Another thing that you can do if you want to come out as a mystic and you don't know how to be funny mm-hmm. is indifference. This is and this happened to me once. I was writing away on a, another book, and I was writing I would, about. Re, uh, listener, I would love to you to see Martha's um, little <laughs> gesture that she does to indicate writing. <laughs> she's like vaguely typing, but she actually looks more like she's having a panic attack. <laughs> I lay my hands a lot. Okay, so I'm writing away. And I'm writing about my son, Adam, who has Down syndrome, and everybody said he would be a big drain on my life. And instead, I said, uh, the way I experience it is that I live with a spiritual master. And then I had to go back because I always go back and I make it more palatable to the culture by saying, oh, so I think my, you know, he's kind of a spiritual master, but that's just because, you know, in my emotional way, I blah, 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 whatever you believe. <laughs> Don't take me seriously. Me. And instead, I went back there and I said, I wrote down, if you disagree with me, and I was going to say, I totally understand, but, and I found myself typing, I respectfully do not care. Amen. And I just decided that about all my weird mystical experiences, if you want to mock me and shame me, I respectfully do not care. And I am really there after a lot of years of this. Yeah, we talked in our last episode about, you know, being free to be as weird as you really are. And I think that that this is like a branch of that is, yep. And and I also sometimes angels save my life more than once. So, yeah, more than once. In fact, how many times? Twice. Twice. <laughs> so it's interesting, though, because the scientific method is what people say they're believing when they like completely dismiss anything mystical but the actual scientific method is to observe what can be observed and try to make some meaning out of it now here's the thing ro that i thought this often some people can see the rings of saturn i guess without a telescope but i can't most people can't so if you said look i have watched saturn through a telescope and it has all these rings around it Mm -hmm. come and look Mm -hmm. a scientist might say no 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 I only believe what I see, and I don't see rings around Saturn. And you say, well, look through the telescope, you'll see more rings. And the scientist says, that's nonsense. You're just playing party games. I see what I see. There are no rings around Saturn. Okay, change the telescope to meditation. Mm. If you meditate for a long period of time, weird shit starts to come down. Like, they call it, you know, in meditation traditions say it's of no great significance, but yes, you will experience magic. You will have visions. You will have paranormal experiences. Don't worry about it. It's all part of growing as a human being. Just keep meditating and contemplating the absolute. So you say to a scientist, look, I got all these visions when I was in meditation. And they say, you're just deluding yourself. And you say, 
try meditation. And they say, no, I believe what I see. There are no visions. There are no paranormal experiences. So they're, um, they're not using the scientific method. They're yeah. using the scientific culture, which is oh, actually not the scientific method. The boom. scientific method blew Newton's physics out of the water 100 years ago, as I say, I think, every single episode. Quite but rightly. I say it because the culture never moved on from things are just randomly bonking around. And <laughs> randomly that is not bonking what around science a memoir. tells us now. So I say use the scientific method on your magic. And, and I mentioned it a minute ago, bring all your meaning-making systems to the table because your cognitive, um, sequential brain, the, the verbal brain, is much weaker and, and less evolved than the parts governing emotion and physical responses and whatever spiritual experiences actually are. Those are ancient, ancient, ancient. So sit with an experience... And instead of saying it's not real because people will mock me if I claim it is, feel what's right in every aspect of your meaning-making apparatus. So it should feel like opening emotionally, an opening of mind, but also an opening of heart. It should feel like relaxation in the body because the body relaxes when it feels truth. If you believe in the soul at all, it feels free as opposed to not free, when it finds something true. And, and the mind basically says, I see how the math could work. You know, if I go and read quantum physics, I'm like, yeah, that math could work. So yeah, that's what I say is bring all your scientific rigor to your experiences, but don't throw them out because of scientific culture. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I absolutely. And I would add, you know, if you, if you have a resistance to something, just check out if that's the embarrassment of the culture working on you as opposed to there being an aversive nature to what you're looking at, right? Right. So I think I'm understanding you right, Marty, to come to our senses when it comes to magic. Yes. You want to climb to the top of a tree. Well, first you take scream. off all your clothes. Take off all your clothes. Top of the tree, screaming. Scream. You want to make friends with seals Absolutely. and put them in your bathtub. Yes. Go to Harvard and read the secret there. That's it. Done. Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> All right. I think we've solved magic. I think we have. So come out of the consensus that says there is no magic. Come into your senses and just see how much magic there is. And, and really, truly, when you start to take it seriously and apply rigorous thought to it, it starts to look a lot more solid. Don't forget, peeps. Stay, Stay wild. wild. We hope you're enjoying Bewildered. If you're in the USA and want to be notified when a new episode comes out, text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. For more of us, Martha's on Instagram, the Martha Beck. She's on Facebook, the Martha Beck. And she's on Twitter, Martha Beck. Her website is marthabeck.com. And me, I too am on Instagram, Rowan underscore Mangan. I'm on Facebook as Rowan Mangan, and I'm on Twitter as Rowan Mangan. Bewildered is produced by Scott Forster with support from the brilliant team at MBI. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need 
a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think and the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way. <laughs>